Welcome to the Imagine a Life podcast. I'm Frances LaQuesta, and I help women thrive and live a life they love. Together, we'll explore how to tap into our potential, unlock possibilities, and find beauty in this messy and imperfect journey we call life. So hello, dear Imaginals. Today, I'm with my friend Cecilia Muzondiwa. Let me tell you a little bit about her. She's one of the most inspiring and resilient women I know. She's an immigrant from Zimbabwe. She moved to Canada in 2001. She's a family and immigration lawyer, a certified coach, and the CEO and founder of Global People First, which is a consultancy business focusing on diversity, inclusion, and equity. Cecilia is a seasoned diversity and inclusion expert, and I'm so happy she's joining me today here in the show. Cecilia, welcome to the Imaginal Life. Oh, wow. Thank you. Thank you, Francis, for that introduction. I am honored to be here, and I'm so glad that you invited me. You, you inspire me in, in many ways. One of the things that I've learned from you, and I always think about it, is you know the quiet big impact that people like yourself have and I've always seen you as a powerful influence in your own way so thank you Uh, thank you so much Cecilia for those kind words so I'm really looking forward to this conversation because I know we spoke about this two years ago right during the height of the pandemic yes (laughs) yeah and I know during that time you were writing a book and you were telling me about it and I and we had this conversation and you said okay once you have that let me know and then we can do this and finally after two years we are here and yeah and and later on you're gonna tell us about about your book yeah I'm really excited about this conversation because of what you bring to the table I believe it's really so important, especially for immigrant women and people of color like us, right, who want to become effective leaders in, especially here in the West. So, but before I go to to that, to talk about leadership, I want to start from the beginning. Uh, You have, you have accomplished so many things in your personal and professional life. So, uh, we mentioned it earlier, you moved from Zimbabwe to Canada, but you're also a lawyer. You're an entrepreneur. You're now a book author. And most of all, you're a mother. So how how do you juggle all of them together? And what is that the journey like? Yeah, that's an interesting question. So thinking of where to start, I think I have always believed that I've been blessed immensely in my in my life. I am of Christian belief, so I believe that God has blessed me in many ways because I have been able to experience different things (laughs) in my long, short life. (laughs) And I'm like, wow, this is uh, when I when the time comes for for me to finally rest, I can say I I have been privileged to experience and, and to do many things. So I was born in Zimbabwe, as you said, on a family. We had eight siblings, so seven girls, one boy. And just to what I would call, you know, kind of a humble background, my parents were both not working. It was during the the British um, colonial time, mm-hmm. and um, they did what they could as subsistent farmers to take care of these eight kids. 
and I'm number six of the eight. And so one of the things I really appreciate about my dad, he was a, a progressive man of his time. You know, we come from a, a culture that, you know, kind of would require a, a value boys more than the girls. But my dad insisted that he wanted to send his girls to school. So we were privileged to be sent to school. I did go to a Catholic boarding school. And it was during that experience that I felt the call or the the inspiration to become a nun. So, yeah, I, I joined the Dominican Sisters when I finished high school, turning on 18. And I stayed with the Dominicans for 10 years. So the prime of my life I spent in the convent. It's at first I used not to talk about it, but now it, because I realized it was an experience that shaped and made who I am today. It's an experience that I cherish because I learned a lot about myself. I learned a lot about how to live with others, about God, and about about you know Christianity in the world. And so I really appreciate the time I spent in the convent. So I I did make a decision to leave. And people always ask me, why then did you leave? (laughs) I think the biggest decision, you know, like push factor for me was when I shared with the nuns that I wanted to be a lawyer. And they said, unfortunately, you cannot be a nun and a lawyer. And I felt that uh, this was a stronger calling for me because uh, access to justice is something that Mm -hmm. is strong for me. And so I decided to leave that life. And then that also made me make other decisions. I left the convent and I left the country. And so I left Africa and came to North America to start a life. So that that's the background of where I come from, where where I've been, what I've done in terms of my early life. Uh, and then when I came to Canada, it was, um, I underestimated the change because I was going through a double t- change, transformation, living the life I had known for 10 years in the convent and then living the life that I had known for the rest of my life in my 20s, I had lived in Zimbabwe. And so when I came to Canada, I struggled uh, because I felt, for some time I felt like I had fallen from grace, but I didn't realize that it's just a big change from one country, one continent to the other, one kind of life to the other. And then I say to myself, wow, what is it that I feel God is calling me to continue to do? Because leaving the convent doesn't mean losing God's call. Right. So I was like, let me revisit that which I felt God wanted me to do. And I have always felt that I, I need to bring other people, you know, to be, to add value to others by by providing leadership by providing my own services in different ways especially women so I've been very very passionate about what I can do to improve my own life as a woman but also influence the life of other women so that's that's in a nutshell just in terms of um, what drives me and why I do what I do and then we can talk more about how I'm doing it now yeah yeah Yes. Yeah, and and you became a lawyer, and uh, I think you you got your license. Was it like just two three years ago? Yes. Or was it? Yeah. Yeah. So so what what happened was uh, when I came to Canada, I kind of got lost because I was like, well, where do I start? What do I do? I needed to pay the bills, and I needed so I did different things. So I actually the first thing I went to school, I went back to school, and I I had graduated in Zimbabwe. I did. Um, 
I had an honors degree in philosophy and religion. So when I and I was teaching in Zimbabwe because you could do you could teach with that. So I taught high school history. When I came here, I was like, I don't know what to do next. So I ended up um, going to school and I did a political science master's degree in an area called human security and peace building. Mm. And because I really wanted to serve in a different way, and uh, I was hoping to work in the humanitarian field with agencies like the United Nations, Care Canada, or or these agencies. So in that program, we had a field experience that we needed to do. So we went to Uganda as a cohort, mm-hmm. as a class. We spent 30 days in Uganda and we went to a hotspot. So this was an area where there was war between the government and the rebels. So we went to northern Uganda and what I saw there was what changed my way of thinking and my trajectory. I had never seen in, I had only read about the effects of war, but seeing it live for me, like seeing people who had lost a leg, an arm, nose half cut, you know, an ear and villages that were annihilated was too too heavy for my heart. And it told me I was not able to do that work. So I finished the program, but what it did, it inspired me to go back to my original uh, idea of wanting to be a lawyer, because this time I was like, okay, I want to work at the International Criminal Court at The Hague mm-hmm. and prosecute people who cause these kind of sufferings to others, like war, mass murders, wars, and things like that. So I went back to law school and with the intention of becoming an international uh, criminal lawyer mm-hmm. and working at The Hague. That was my dream. And so when I went to law school, again, I was like going into, because what you do when you're in law school, you you do the rotation. So when it's family law, you do the family law rotation, go to court, observe the, the proceedings and stuff like that. When I observed the criminal proceedings, I was like, okay, this is now validation that my heart is not strong to <laughs> deal with these issues. And so I did not continue to pursue criminal law, but I, I, I just finished to, 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 to practice law. And right now I practice uh, immigration, uh, family and human rights, which is tied to what my passion of also of diversity and inclusion. So, so that, that is the journey that I have done. And I, like you say, when when we talk about what you're doing this and one and do you're practicing law, you're doing diversity and inclusion, you're parenting and you're doing your yes. it, it sounds like a lot and it is a lot sometimes. But here's what I discovered is that when you're doing something that is your passion, it's not mm. work, it's your way of being. So uh, it's my way of being. I know I'm talking to you today. Tomorrow I'm talking to a church that has uh, invited me to say, tell us more about how can we as a church practice diversity and inclusion? Mm. So when I do that, I'm not working there. How much are you charging? I said, you know what? I could charge you, but because I'm a Christian, you are a church. I sometimes do pro bono things. And so so that's why for me, it's a, it's a passion. It's a way of being, and I can juggle it. it it's not, sometimes it's just challenging. <laughs> yeah, I mean... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that's true. And you were talking about it. I was like, wow, you're doing a lot of work. And these are very important and vital work. Yes. And we are so glad that we have someone like you who is out there doing this. And, you know, um, I, I mean, when when 
we tell our stories, it seems like it's easy, right? It's just like, okay, this is the story that I have, etc. But but what we sometimes miss out are the actual it's the actual experience of what it was like when we had to overcome something. Oh. And so I think one one of the things that I'm curious about is that I'm pretty sure there's a lot of challenges that you have encountered, like hurdles you have to jump over to get to where you are right now. But if you can think of just one of your the biggest challenges that you've had, what what would that be, especially as, as an immigrant woman and woman of color? Yeah, that's 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 a yeah, you're you're so right. There's so many challenges that you know we all face as humans. And I have my, I have had my own. I still have some, <laughs> but the one that really stands out is because it actually touches on a lot of things we are mm-hmm. talking about. So, when because I'm an immigrant to Canada, I decided when I decided to go back to law school, I could not afford it to do full time law school here. So I decided to do it with a university outside because then I could do it while I worked mm-hmm. and so. I, pay the bills and also continue to send money home to support mm-hmm. my family, my parents, mm-hmm. my siblings. And so when I, and so I chose to do it with the university of South Africa and it was on my, for my, on my end, I didn't do enough research, but also I made assumptions that cause I was working for healthcare here in Canada. And I saw that we were taking a lot of doctors from South Africa. And I thought, oh, that's easy transition. And also South Africa is a neighbor to Zimbabwe. If I decide to go and retire home, then I can just go practice because it's not mm-hmm. difficult. So it was a misguided decision because I only got to know after I finished. South Africa is Roman Dutch jurisdiction because they were they were colonized by the, the, mm-hmm. the Dutch first and then the British. And, and so their law is mixed. And then Canada is a common law jurisdiction. So when I finished, which the degree that I did with South Africa took me five years and I I wrote 48 exams Mm. to pass that. And then when I sent my degree and transcript to Federal Law Society of Canada for conversions, then they said, oh, your choice is to go back to school for two years or to challenge 10 exams. (laughs) After I wrote 48 exams Mm -hmm. and here in Canada, if you're doing the law degree, you write about 24, 25 exams. Mm-hmm. I did double that. And then I have to do another 10 exams. So I was upset. And um, and I, I, but then I had to realize that, okay, it was my decision. I made it, I didn't do enough research. And then also when I was doing the conversion exam, I actually realized that it was actually good for me to, to do those exams to see, because some of the law is quite different. Mm-hmm. Of course, basically everyone has to do the basics, which is specific to every country is, is constitutional law, administrative law, you know, foundations of that country's law, criminal yeah. law. But then I had to do five more to have this. So it was a tough journey. I said to myself, I have a job. Do I have to do that? I almost gave it up. But then I said, you know what? I've come this far. I still need to work on it. So I did my 10 exams, challenged them all without failing any. So 
I have been grateful to God for the opportunity to be able to handle the pressure of exams. Mm-hmm. So 48 of my exams <laughs> never failed any, 10 of my exams didn't, because I wrote with colleagues who were saying, it's my third time to write this, this module. And, uh, and, and I was doing it while I worked full time. Right. So, so I've been, been grateful. And I thought after I did the conversion exams, I'm like, oh, now I have arrived. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so now they, I got the, con, the the conversion certificate, and then they said your next cha- your next step is to look for articles. So then I was like, yeah, great. So I I put my resume on. I have great schooling. I have a bachelor's. I have a master's. And now I have an LLB. I have work experience. <laughs> I thought it was gonna be easy. Yeah. This is where I experienced the pain of being black mm-hmm. and an immigrant mm-hmm. in Canada, and. and I was getting no responses. I think at first I, I sent to about 10 law firms and I got no zero response from all of them. And then I put another 10 and again, I got a zero response. And then one of my white friends, uh, she introduced me to another lawyer who worked for a law firm here in town. And he was gracious enough to, to, to have a coffee meeting with me. And then he told me that, look, we we already take a lot of our friends and clients, kids who do articles with us. So we don't take somebody like you who we don't know why you did your law degree from outside of Canada. Maybe you were not smart enough, you know, to do it here. (laughs) Maybe you didn't pass LSAT. And so he was the first person to tell me the truth. And I, I still remember his name and I said to him, Jason, I thank you. You were the first one who actually responded and told mm-hmm. me the truth because I was in this assumption that I was being considered equally as others, mm-hmm. but I realized I was not going to get articles mm-hmm. to because I was not, I didn't come from the university here. Nobody knew me. I had no parents or whatever who can help me to get the articles. So that was the biggest challenge for me. It took me three years when I found, I finally found the articles because one law firm that I had applied to, they had not responded. They just put my resume aside, but they saw me speak at an event. Mm. And this Ooh. guy was like, oh, wow. Then I think she, in his head, he was like, oh, she can speak English. <laughs> <laughs> because when I spoke, I, I got resounding mm. applause in the room. I was the mm. only speaker who people really kind of connected to. And it, that that was my gateway to getting mm-hmm. articles. So it was while it was good, but it was also a sad awakening of, okay, so when people see my last name, their mm-hmm. assumption is, oh, I don't think she can speak English. Right, oh, right. She, 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 she graduated from South Africa. Oh, maybe she's not smart enough. And so and then realize these are the things that we go through every day in terms of microaggressions for us as, uh, you know, people of color or women or whatever. And we kind of take them as normal because we just learn to survive. But I I kind of realized that and the realization was heightened uh, in 2020 after the murder of George Floyd, uh, when everything just came to me and realized whatever I was experiencing that Mm. we're still going through a lot of uh, discrimination, racism, colonial effects, systems that are really there's a lot of prejudice bigotry whatever you want to call it and our world is so torn so that was the beginning and inspiration of me wanting to write a book 
Yeah. And that's a great segue into the book. And um, you launched it just recently. And it's called Beyond Tokenism. And it's about belonging and becoming an inclusive leader. And you spoke about uh, the inspiration on that book and how it eventually came into you writing the book. And uh, the things that you have spoken there, um, I can relate to it so much. Also, as an immigrant from the Philippines, moved here in the States about eight years ago. And I, too... When I, when I first came here, I was just this, you know, I was so intimidated being in the workplace for the first time because yeah. I felt like I was quiet. I mean, my my personality and nature is really reserved and quiet, yeah. but it I didn't really make it into like something of a big deal until it was like presented to me in my face. Mm. You know, I was called like, oh, you're so quiet. It's always pointed out that I'm just this, mm. you know, I'm I'm Asian and I'm on this just like, you know, on my own corner, just working all the time. Uh-huh. And it took me a while to to get to get used to working in a in in, in the workplace. So I was like thinking about, you know, words that you also wrote in your book about getting assimilated, right? So yeah. for me, it was about, I have to assimilate. I have to adopt. I have to be just like them. Otherwise, my voice is not going to be heard. And uh, exactly. And yeah. here's the thing. When I first came in here, I didn't realize that the amount of money or the salary that I asked for was so low uh, that in the living standards in America, I I would not be able to to I only realized it later on that yeah with this amount of money how will I be able to to pay for rent or yeah. to do other stuff and I didn't realize that and it uh-huh. only took me like maybe about two to two years three two to three years after that I found a voice to ask oh. for a race oh, wow. and it, it so that's for me was my my learning and eventually uh-huh. of course it's just like I I you know, I'm starting to find my voice and to really yeah. be able to have that confidence to ask for my worth. And um, again, on you mentioned about 2020, and that somehow also opened my eyes into, wait a minute, right? So this is not just me. It's not uh-huh. just about me, but it's yeah. about a whole lot of things that you mentioned earlier. And it 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 needs to be deconstructed and deconditioned. Yeah. And it needs to be looked into. And with, uh, you know, with a microscope, right? And I think that's what you're also doing in, in your book. And so let's talk a little bit about your book and maybe uh, describe like, what is tokenism? Because I honestly, this is the first time that I that I encountered that term. So well, can you can you speak a little bit about that? Oh, yeah, sure. So tokenism is when we do things uh, to appear as if right, um, to appear as if we are actually solving a problem when we are actually just doing it to check boxes. And what inspired me to talk about tokenism was after the George Floyd um, incident, uh, which, by the way, I didn't watch that movie, that knee mm-hmm. on the neck mm-hmm. was too much for my heart. I've told you about what my heart can take and can't yeah. take. And I, um, I only got to cry cry for two hours Mm -hmm. after I went to the march that was um, demonstrating against it. Uh, So after that, I saw that a lot of organizations were putting out statements and everybody's saying this and we are creating departments on diversity and all that, Mm. which I thought 
at first I thought, wow, that's good for the first time we were moving the dial. And then I was disillusioned quickly, maybe a few months, six months down the road and realized that a lot of these people, these organizations were putting out statements just to protect their businesses, to appear as if they support the cause. But there was no real change that was happening. So there was a lot of money pumped out, you know, our organizations applying for the grant to do diversity and all that. And I realized they were just doing it in where I sit as a human rights lawyer. I do get people coming to complain about different things. And I know some of those organizations, even in my city, that I get so many complaints coming from this organization, but they have done so much work training, so to say, on mm-hmm. diversity. Mm-hmm. And they were just doing it to put a check mark that we are a supporting, we support diversity. But in, in actual fact, they really want things to, to remain status quo because they benefit from the system. Because this the, the systems that we have that discriminate were designed to work that way. They are not mm-hmm. a mistake, right? And so they were designed to promote. So if we talk about white supremacy, which is a word that some people react to, it was to protect their privilege. It was to protect whatever they wanted to protect economically, um, in, in, in socially, so that they have a different social standing in society. I come from Africa I think about how uh, my people were taken into slavery. So a lot of the African-American in the United States being a result of slavery that actually, from a Christian perspective, used the Bible to to say this was okay. Mm. So these systems have been engraved into what we have today in our society. And if we want to dismantle discrimination and racism, and some of those other things, we need to look into our systems. So I, I talked about the story of myself being becoming a lawyer. For, for you, the Western world here in America, Canada, in order to become a lawyer, you need to write the, the, the LSAT exam, mm-hmm. the, the one that pre-qualifies you. I did it. I passed the exam. But I look at it now in hindsight and I see what is in the exam. It is also an exam that is designed to be only to accept a few and people who are not grown up in North America mm-hmm. would fail it not because they are not we are not smart but because they ask things in ways that are not familiar to us right. so that's how we talk about systems so when the organizations and governments say they are diverse they want a minority they 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 want different people to apply to their positions what they put in the job postings it's also tokenism because in reality, when the hiring is being done, and I talk as someone who's, who has sat on many interviews, you have done many, uh, what we call them, um, when you are sifting through resumes and you are shortlisting. Mm-hmm. I have seen how people will look at just the last name of somebody and disqualify the resume. Mm-hmm. I have seen how people look at the name and, oh, this person went to the same school like me, right. which we, it's unconscious bias about, you know, what you're mm-hmm. familiar with. You think it's a, it's something that you go with. And that's how our brain works, right? So so they, when I talk about tokenism, I'm like, okay, let's go beyond checking boxes to actually saying, how do we in our community, in our organizations, in our workplaces, in our churches, whatever we come, wherever we come together, 
how do we actually see? So to say, I can see you, Francis, and it's okay to be introverted Mm -hmm. and it's okay to be quiet. I want to leverage what you bring without wanting you to assimilate to be extroverted or to to be white like <laughs> or to be African. I I want to accept you as a Filipino. Mm-hmm. I think that that's 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 what I'm hoping when we go beyond tokenism we can see people for who they are and accept them for who they are. I love I, I just absolutely love it. You know what when you when you were um just like uh, when you were saying and telling me like I see you, you know, I I felt like a visceral reaction. Just even that alone, those those three words can make so much of a difference. Yes, right. Like in and yeah. you you said about you know in in the book that it's not just about hey somebody here is to represent this <laughs> so checkbox okay yes. we we have this check we we got yeah. it mm-hmm. but what does it really mean to be part of something and to be seen and to be uh, heard. And that's the thing though. It's like, there's, there are a lot of like companies who do, who do have that, but there are also a lot who don't really, they would just use, okay, let's have like a DEI or diversity inclusion and inclusivity officer here and still not really doing the actual work yeah. of in- including uh, people people in. Mm-hmm. So I guess that, that leads me to the question of um, inclusive leadership, because I know that this is what your your book is. It's yeah. this one, by the way. So I'm like a lot of highlights in this book yes. for those of you who are looking at it. Yes. <laughs> I've been highlighting the book like crazy. <laughs> so anyway, yeah. So let's move into uh, inclusive leadership. Like, what is it like let me just um, quote something here in your book that that resonated with me is um one of the characteristics of an inclusive leader that you mentioned is and I quote when a leader can see an individual for who they are first before looking for what they can contribute and you did that to me just now they create a sense of belonging okay so just you telling me I see you made me feel in that instant that I belong Oh my mm-hmm. gosh, I, I have this connection with this other person. She mm-hmm. sees me. And so can you tell us more about what is inclusive leadership and why do we need more inclusive leaders? Yeah, for sure. And and this came from my 16 years, maybe 18 years of my life. I have been in leadership positions. I became a leader at a very young age. And at first I didn't know what I was doing. But, um, you know, when I was thinking about how does it relate to diversity, how does it relate to inclusion and belonging, I was like, I I am a student of John Maxwell. Um, Mm -hmm. John Maxwell says everything rises and falls on leadership. Mm -hmm. And I I have had very good leaders and some bad leaders. And I have been a leader and I always question myself, what kind of a leader am I and how do I want to be remembered? And inclusive leadership for me is being able to, like like we just referenced, to see the individuality of each person in the Mm -hmm. team and then accept that person for who they are and see the potential. For the most part, you know, I think leaders would see, would only talk to employees when they've done something wrong. Right. And 
Yeah, and and there is an uncommunicated message when when we do lead, as leaders when you lead a team that is between who the leader and the people. So if you were on my team, the uncommunicated message is that you will know and I will know whether you are on my A team or my B team. Mm-hmm. So my A team being the people that I prefer and B team is people that I deal with and C team is people that I really wouldn't want to have anything to do with. And and so as an employee, we respond to that uncommunicated message knowing. So if I'm on the B team, my leader doesn't really believe in me. I will only give them so much. I will not bring my whole self. Uh, but if I'm on the A team and the leader shows me that they trust me, that they believe in my potential, that they allow me to make mistakes, they create that psychologically safe space for me to be myself without changing who I am, then I can bring myself, my whole self and say, and contribute to the team. So inclusive leadership, and, and when, when we talk about it, and when we talk about um you know, diversity. Diversity is more than race and gender, right? It's about mm-hmm. age, uh, you know, the different generations we now have in the workplace. Some people are irritated just by the young generation. <laughs> They're like, I don't like the texting generation. And then some young people are irritated by the older generation. Oh, they don't know how to use, you know, social media or computers. How do I, as a leader, embrace the generations that are in my team? Mm-hmm. How do I, as a leader, embrace people who have different disabilities? Uh, How do I, as a leader, embrace different races, different genders, and uh, all of that? And how do I embrace people who think differently from me? Hmm. So neurodiversity that we talk about, because some people think that to be successful as leaders, they should hire people who think like them. But then you're not, your, your team won't grow, you won't innovate if you only put yourself around people who are like-minded. Yeah. You also have to appreciate people who challenge you and think differently. And so so inclusive leadership is all of that. But one cannot just wake up and become an inclusive leader. So mm-hmm. what are the ways that one has, because it's a learned skill. You can learn to become an inclusive leader. I, I wasn't always inclusive. Mm-hmm. I come from a country which does not recognize gays and lesbians. You yes. actually get jailed in Zimbabwe if you are if you profess yourself to be that way. And so at first I used to, and I was raised by Catholics as well, who don't believe in that. And so I did have my own phobias. Mm-hmm. I did have xenophobia. And, I, and then I traveled to Canada in November of 2001 just after 9-11. So I had a fear of Muslims. Uh, if I if somebody had a hijab and I sat next to them on a plane, my the whole time I'll be troubled about, is this plane going to come down? Mm. So we can all have these fears, these biases, these, but it's about awareness. Am I aware of my, the, my own biases as a leader? And how do I deal with those biases? One of the things that I have found very effective in dealing with my own biases is engaging in a conversation and getting to know that which I'm afraid of. Mm-hmm. So I have had to have conversation. I sat next to a Muslim woman going from Vancouver to Auckland, New Zealand, which was 14 hours nonstop. Then I thought, if I'm going to be you know, in trepidation for 14 hours thinking that this woman next to me has a bomb, it's going to be an unpleasant 14 hours. 
So I engaged in a conversation with her just to understand. I said, you know what? I did study. So my first degree, I studied religions of the mm-hmm. world, including Islam. I thought I was a more open-minded person because I studied about religious pluralism. But then I realized no, <laughs> I still have to learn more. So that conversation that I had with the lady was great. She was going to a conference and she was a professional. She We had a lot of things in common. Then, But I had just labeled mm-hmm. her by the fact that she wore a hijab, that she's a threat, she's the other, right? So as, as leaders, especially as leaders, we need to be able to, to question our own biases, question the way we make decisions. When there's a promotion coming, who do we give that promotion? How do we make that decision? What influences the way we make decisions? Because our, our, our subconscious mind is very strong and our mind was created to, to protect us. So right. to the mind, whatever looks different, looks like a threat. What looks familiar to us is a place of comfort for our mind. So I have to interrogate that and say, so if I were not to interrogate myself, I would only be hiring Black people mm-hmm. in the jobs that I have. And in the past 14 years that I've been in my leadership position, I only hired one Black person because my focus was on the best candidate for the job, mm-hmm. not about the person who looks like me or sounds like me or whatever. So that that's the challenge. It's not easy to be an yes. inclusive leader. But if we become an inclusive leader, it just makes things so easy. It, it improves the bottom line. The team performs more effectively. It makes you look good as a leader. I have been a leader for as long as I have been just because I have I have seen and appreciated what the people that are in my team and they have made me look good. That's how I have survived. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned a whole lot of things here and I'm just like uh, scribbling (laughs) all of that. (laughs) But I want to backtrack a little bit because there might be some who are listening to this who are not really familiar what, you know, what it means for what what is diversity, what is equity and what is inclusion. So maybe let's just define that for those who are not. So so can you give us a definition for each? Yeah, for sure. So and there's a lot of definitions around as these are topics that, that are topical, meaning that everybody's talking about these, these in, in, in our day and age. There is there's no agreed definition of some of these terms, just but there is, you know, I think people like me who have written a book yeah. who would say, okay, there's these definitions, but I'm going to use this in my book as my working definition. Mm-hmm. So uh, a lot of people have said many different things about diversity. I look at diversity as as the DNA of who we are as human beings in the creation. Because if you look at the planets, for example, that roll around the the sun, they're all diverse. Mars is different from Jupiter and Earth is different from Saturn and there's no one planet that is the same. So the design of our life is so diverse and the diversity is is what enables us to live. Mm -hmm. If you look at the human body, right, for example, the the eyes are different from the mouth, from the ears, and they all have different functions, but they're key to the function of the whole body. I I had, I injured my little finger uh, two weeks ago and I was like, it's just a small pinky finger, but I don't, I don't understand why my body is feeling pain. <laughs> so much pain. <laughs> so much pain from yeah. a small little finger. It, it's just our design as human beings, we are designed on diversity. 
And, and so diversity, when we talk about diversity in terms of people, we are talking about all our differences, you know, the differences that make us human, whether we are man or woman, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. whether we are young or old, whether we are disabled or not, whether we are skinny or fat, whether we are black or white or, 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 or brown, all these things that we, we see and the unseen things in terms of our culture, in terms of our, the, the, how our minds work and all those things that make a difference. So diversity is about differences. It's the reality of how we are made and what our world looks like. And, and then um, inclusion is, is a choice, you know, it's how we choose to invite people into our groups, because as human beings, we make these in groups, out groups. So inclusion is how to, so for example, yourself who traveled from the Philippines to the United States, how does the community include you, involve you so that you feel you belong, you are at home. So inclusion is how we remove barriers, you know, for people who are traditionally marginalized and allow them to 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 participate in the economic space in the education space in the job space in whatever so inclusion is more about removing the barriers having people participate mm-hmm. and then belonging belonging is a more recent term that has been added to the diversity and inclusion world and I'll go back to APD afterwards belonging is more about how myself as a person feels because one of the things that I've spoken about with leaders is that oh my team feels below they belong I'm like Mm -hmm. how can you tell that because that's a personal feeling for each member of your team not you putting a judgment on it that people feel included people feel they belong so a sense of belonging is when Mm -hmm. uh because belonging if you think of um, Maslow's hierarchy needs it's it's one it's number three. We need to feel that we belong some way in order to be human because we are social beings. And COVID nineteen taught us that that this is in our DNA. We are social beings. We want to interact with others, but we also want to belong to social groups. Right. So a sense of belonging is knowing that I am accepted for who I am without having to change anything about me. And then equity is different from equal, right? So mm-hmm. we cannot uh, create equality in the sense of uh, what you need is different from what I need. So we cannot talk about equality, but we talk about equity. So we both need to feel that we have equal opportunities to a job. So how do we remove the barriers again to make sure that we can participate equally in this so equity is more about if there is going to be opportunities. So if you are looking for a, a, a place to rent, for example, mm-hmm. I have had people here in Canada tell me that they, they apply, they, when they go to the office and the person sees that they are Indigenous or Asian or, or Black, then the person says, sorry, it's taken. Not because the the place is taken, but because, oh, I don't want to rent Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. an indigenous person or a black person or whatever. So that is where there is privilege. And then there is no equity because then 
these other groups struggle to get things like accommodation just because of the the visible out mm-hmm. you know how we look or who we are and, uh, and stuff like that so equity is 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 having people be able to access services without being discriminated for who they are so mm-hmm. th- those are the differences in the in the in the terms but what i have done in the book and that what i said uh, my book contributes in terms of uh, language in the in the in the space of diversity equity and inclusion is to say when we talk about diversity we are talking about the human the the human race so diversity is about the human race we are one human race but we actually present in different ways we are one human race because as human beings we all want the same things we all want to be loved we all want to belong somewhere we all want peace we all want for the most part we want the same things and our our makeup our dna is made up of the same things we all have white and red blood cells i'm yet to see a human being who operates differently we all have the vital organs of heart lungs whatever so we are a human race so that's diversity so in our diversity of being black asian middle eastern white caucasian whatever we are all human race that's my 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 definition of diversity and then when we talk about equity it's about our human brain so our human brain is the one that discriminates it's the one that creates barriers it's the one so when our human brain as i said is it was created to kind of protect us so how do we become aware of those biases that creates barriers and how do we remove them that's the only way we can achieve equity and then our uh, belonging is an inclusion and belonging is about the human heart hmm. so it's how as you know as human beings it's about feelings right so if i feel that i'm accepted here i'll open up and i'll stay if i feel that i'm not being accepted here i'll close up and mm-hmm. i will not stay so it's about the human race the human brain and the human heart so that's what the book is talking about i love it how you how you're able to like make it simple yes. um, for everybody to be able to understand and I especially love when you said, you know, belonging is about the human heart. And that's what I've been getting from your book yes. pretty much. It's it's like treating people as humans first, mm-hmm. right? It's not just looking at them because of their color or different types of personality or religion or whatnot. And to see them as humans. And, and you said it, that we have the same makeup right? As a human race. Mm-hmm. And the difference is that, right? We have this, our human brains, which is discriminates. Right? Mm-hmm. And, and there are some things right, that, you know, we, we are conditioned, right? Yeah. So there, there are so many things that affect that or influence that. Yes. And it takes years and even a lifetime to, to dismantle, right? And oh, to condition yes. ourselves. Mm-hmm. And, one of the things that you said is to bring awareness. And I think this is what we're doing here right now. That if there's anything that we could give people this opportunity to just be a, bring awareness to, are we, what kind of judgment are we bringing into our work? Are the people who lead us or the people we, we, we lead or manage? Yeah. And, and not even just in the workplace, right? But on day-to-day instances when we see people in the streets, right? Yeah. So, so even... Like, for example, because, I mean, we're very judgmental, 
Yeah. It's sometimes it's just like <laughs> automatic. Our brains are just like, oh, this, we, we put labels on everything. Yes. yes. And so I think also what comes in here is that bringing that heart to it and a lot of compassion, not yeah. only to towards others, but also to ourselves because, um, because it's, it takes a while that even if we bring awareness to it, that's the first step. What, what else do we need to do? Right. Like, like how do we make the, the leap or that move for us to be able to, to evolve into these humans who, who actually see real people. And I know that, that the, the biases that we have, We'll have it <laughs> because yeah. it's no matter what we do, we have it. Yeah, but it's there and recognize it that it's it's that it exists. And I think being educated by it also uh-huh. all the time, yeah. and this is what we're doing here right now. So I think the the question here also is that because. I know that the book is mostly on in terms of the workplace, like leaders in the workplace, how to become an inclusive leader in the workplace. How do you bring it in the day-to-day, like just us in, in our homes, right? In our yeah. community, with our friends. Yeah. So how, how do we how do we bring that? Yeah, no, that's a, a great question. And my assumption was that, um, you know, we are all leaders, right? In, be it at home. I look at my daughter, she's four. So I am a leader. Mia looks up to me as the leader. So how do I influence and teach her my friends in the community i have i live in a in a a place where most of my friends were not the same race as me and so when they express those some of those you know statements that kind of uh, show ignorance or they are actually truly curious and questioning how do i take the opportunity to say to engage in a conversation and say hey Let's talk about this, uh, say more about this and and, and mm-hmm. stuff like that. I think you you talked about how, you know, we need compassion. And I had to learn. I'm one who had to have compassion mm-hmm. with myself. I think for some time I moved as a, an angry Black woman because I had <laughs> I had no patience, no understanding mm-hmm. with people who ask me, oh, is Africa a country? And then in my head, I'm like, there we go again. You know, you need to get out of yourself, you know, <laughs> people who would just say things that I felt was really offensive. But right. when I learned about the unconscious bias that and science has proved that as long as we have a brain, we are biased. And that what we need to do is to be aware of it and then to work on our awareness of what we need mm-hmm. to change in ourselves. So one of the things that I really believe in and what I hope for in terms of uh, making a change in our world is that these are matters of the mind and heart. And mind and heart starts with each individual. And unless and until each individual works on their own to say, okay, I need to understand this and I need to change in the way I look at others and the world. The, this is the, a lot of things won't change. I live in a in a town where people say, "Oh, you live in you live in Grand Prairie. It's a redneck country." <laughs> and I have met great people here, and I've also met people who are really still would would put their Confederation flag, mm-hmm. who believe that Hitler was right. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, people who have really strong feelings about what we would call okay. we would see as wrong and they feel they are right in their in their beliefs too mm-hmm. right and so 
how do we slowly educate uh, people who think differently from us? How do we uh, influence to say, look, because I truly believe that uh, the human being, we were wonderfully blessed with a very creative mind. Look at what the human mind has created. Mm-hmm. You know, the computers, look at the, each time I'm on a plane, I'm like, this is just amazing. This is a reflection of the mind of God. Um, look at the spaceships. We our minds can do a lot of things, but unless and until we, we recognize that we are all one human race, mm-hmm. we are still not civilized enough. Mm-hmm. We can all do all these wonderful things, but we are not. Because if, if we, we need to realize that we, we were put on this, planet earth to have shared spaces human beings if we were so different we could have our own planets asians in in on, on mars mm-hmm. black on Saturn, yeah. whatever <laughs> but, <laughs> but the designer whatever it is and i'm not uh, advocating for any religion here but the way we are designed is to recognize that we are one human race sharing this space and how mm. can we do that better so yeah. that's what Every individual, where we are, we have to demonstrate that leadership of, I want to see you and I want to see, I will also catch my own biases against white people uh, and say, these people that I live with now are not the ones who did colonialism before. Of course, we still have the systems that were created then and they're being perpetuated, but I want to also give them the benefit of the doubt and say, hey, how can we work together? Because right now, one of the things that I know is everybody's walking on eggshells. Right. Yes. Being afraid to say the wrong exactly. thing. I don't want to. Do. So how do we go beyond that? How do mm. we now move the dial to, hey, let's sit down and talk as humans and say what works for us together without putting people into categories of us and them. Mm-hmm. You, you are a Muslim. You are a Christian. You are black. You are Asian. You are white. You are young. You are old. You are American. I am African. You are all these artificial categories we have created. Because when people have asked me, "Hey, can we call you black?" I said, "You can call me black all you want," because these are just artificial categories we used for different reasons. If it was domination or whatever, I said because if it's just like if I can ask you, "Can I call you white?" Because this my top I have on is white. Mm-hmm. But if anybody looks like this, they must be sick. They need to be attended to. This is not white. <laughs> You're not white, right? But these are officially mm-hmm. categories we have put on ourselves mm-hmm. as humans. I don't care about you calling me black. I care about you respecting me as a human being. Right, right, right. So so, so those are some of the things that I hope my book will start to, to encourage yeah. people to have con- those brave conversations where pe- people speak truth to power. So, uh, we can come together. Yeah, thank you for for actually mentioning this, like uh, you know, on how to like how do we educate ourselves, especially with those who we feel are different from us, right? Mm-hmm. It's like us and them, and and it's like on my end, it's for those who have different beliefs as I do, for mm-hmm. those who, in terms of like the people we support, right, in politics yeah. or government, right? Mm-hmm. So it's right now there's a lot of division right oh. here. It's just like it's like us and then you're them and mm. and sometimes I would uh, avoid just reading the news because <laughs> because you know each time that I read something that's just I feel it's against what I believe in 
and I feel that uh, expresses a lot of oppression and domination. Yeah. yeah, it's just and I I mean it, it's like a knife to to my heart, and it's it's really painful. So how how do we like move? Uh, yeah, so so the question is like how exactly do we work with that? Because I mean that's very real. Like we read and use all the time. It's like people believe different things, and yes. like you said, there are people who are so so fixed on that. No matter what you say to them, it becomes uh-huh. just like you know, it becomes a a war, right? It, they're not the type who would sit down and and actually listen and talk. Uh-huh. So for those who are like going through the same things that are also avoiding conversations and conflicts that you mentioned about, you know, walking an eggshell. And I feel that same way too. It's like, I'd rather not deal with this because I don't like to have, you know, have to deal with that. Do I really want to spend energy on that? You know, things like that. But Mm -hmm. like you said, it's also important to put it out in the open and have a conversation about it. Uh So what can you um, say about, about that? Like, yeah, those are those are really good questions. So first of all, to to respond to that, we we do live in a very polarized world right now. Yes. We've seen that in politics. We see that in 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 our social circles. So for example, during COVID, we had more more families being fragmented because some believed in the vaccine, others not. So the pro and anti vaxxers and then we have uh, the spectrum of being in the right, left, or mid-center. And then we have other racisms and other isms that are already right. have already been existing. So it has increased the polarization. So one, and it can feel overwhelming. And some people have done exactly what you say to say, you know what, I, I don't want to mm-hmm, <laughs> spend energy mm-hmm. in this. I just mind my own business and live my life. Yeah. I think um, the, the 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 kind of compromise to that is that we can't we have to choose the hills to die on, right? Mm. So there there are there are sometimes situations where you feel you're just going to use the energy; it's not going to help anyone. There are also situations where there are opportunities to speak up and stand up. Yes. And then there are opportunities where we have to deal with ourselves to say. We know we cannot make another person do things or change, but we can only change ourselves. So the change is how we respond to to things like that. In my capacity as a lawyer, I've had families who come back and say, my husband said he's not paying child support anymore because I took the child for vaccination. Mm. Well, too bad because uh, child support is is not related to vaccination. Yes. It's about the support of a child, and there are there are families who have never who haven't come together since COVID because they've been divided that way. And so there are very strong opinions. I think for me, like I said, I used to walk like a an angry black woman, but one one of the things you said that I am taking away from this conversation was compassion with self and others. Mm-hmm. Right. So I do have some compassion when I see that some people have very strong opinions about Mm. segregation, feeling that they are better than others. And I I can only imagine that that's a a painful life to live, Mm -hmm. a a difficult life to protect because the world is changing and they cannot do anything to stop this world. It's going to look different in the next 10 years, in the next 40 years. 
And so then no one can stop that. And 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 so I can I did meet one that had real fear about immigrants here. I was uh, working in a different town and we were in a restaurant and he he started being nice and I thought oh these are nice professionals we are just talking we are in a different town we are eating they because they asked to join my table because I was on, on alone and then they talked me that they talk, they started telling me that. They don't. They 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 don't want immigrants in this country. The immigrants are coming to take back whatever they feel was taken away from them. They are going to take their jobs away. And he had real fear. And this person was a, a trained social worker. And mm-hmm. I was like, oh my god. Uh, and then and then and then is and then he also said climate change. It's all bullshit. It's all boogie boogeyman and all that. And I was like, wow. So at first I was surprised. And then when I was in my hotel room thinking about uh, that couple, I felt sorry for them. So I had empathy and and more compassion uh, on them because I was like, that must be a difficult life to live in Mm -hmm. such fear. Mm -hmm. Because for him, each time he sees somebody who has come to Canada from somewhere, it's, it's telling him that now they're going to come and take things away from him. They're going to jail him for whatever. So so I, I think that, like I said, there's three spectrum. It's an honest spectrum of identifying the hills to die on, mm-hmm. knowing what that we can't change other people, but change ourselves, how we react and respond to things and seeing where there is opportunity. When people ask me and they're asking genuinely, I take that opportunity to say, hey, let's talk about that. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Though, like, There are areas or places and spaces that we can also create ourselves to have these conversations because it's not fitting all the time right? yeah. <laughs> to, to be that and, 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 know yeah. when, and know when there's that opportunity to do that and create one ourselves in safe spaces. Mm-hmm. So. I want to move to uh, speaking about safe spaces. <laughs> you mentioned a lot in the book also about psychological safety. Mm-hmm. And I think it's very important to, to talk about that. One of the instances when you mentioned it is when you said that when you moved from Zimbabwe to Canada, when you were new in the country, you felt like you lost you know, your strength, like it's mm-hmm. completely different. And, and of course you said you 10 years from the convent and then completely different country. And you felt that it wasn't really psychologically safe for you. And until the time that you were able to feel uh, safety, then you started to show up and unleash mm-hmm. your talents and skills. And I think there's some instances also in the book about belonging, about creating inclusive spaces, about mm-hmm. psychological safety. So can you tell us more about, about that? Yeah, so actually, so psychological safety is, um, it's, there is a project and I talk about that in the book uh, done by Google, I think. Mm-hmm. And, and then they, they were looking at, you know, what are the factors that makes that make teams successful. And, and and a lot of assumptions was that it was going to be trust, you know, intelligence, hiring the right people, but it what they came up and said it's psychological safety. Mm-hmm. And, and psychological safety is a space where people feel they can be themselves without being judged, without being punished for being different, with, you know, without being asked to be who they are not. Mm-hmm. And, and that, that space is... Mm-hmm. It's difficult for many to create because it's not just in the workplace, even at home. So for people who have kids like myself, is does my child feel the safety of 
uh, you know, being herself and make mistakes without mommy punishing her. And, and so it starts from our homes. A lot of the things we talk about here, they start from our homes, right? And then they go into this, into the community. So psychologically, psychological safety, the example I give in the book is of my VP. I still have to give the book to him, Todd Gilchrist, who, when I sent a very strong letter to him mm, responding to the, yeah, responding yeah, to yeah, the George that. Floyd case, he sent me a letter, an invitation to talk. And then in his opening speech for our conversation, and 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 when you hear me talk about this, our organization is 120,000 strong battalion. So a VP is like, um, mm-hmm. it's like the second in command of a, a, a state or a country. So so this was not a small matter. So when he, he said, he said, your email was difficult to read. Mm-hmm. I had to sleep over it and I'm glad we are here. I'm here to learn. And if I say something that, well, is wrong, you tell me. Mm. So that's how he created psychological space. He is a white middle-aged man and I was a black immigrant woman. So I'm looking at my at the person who who has history of colonialism, mm-hmm, who mm-hmm. is a man and I'm a woman, who is Canadian and I'm an immigrant, but he removed all those barriers and said, let's sit down and talk. I'm here to learn. So mm-hmm. that put me at ease. He didn't come as I'm the vice president of this organization and I'm white and how dare you. So psychological safety is sitting side by side with the person and saying, hey, we are in this together. Let's talk. Removing all those barriers of title, privilege, because uh, privilege, uh, a lot of people have reacted to the word privilege. Mm-hmm. And I say, it's not just about white privilege. We all can be privileged in different ways. There are spaces where I hold privilege. I get, I'm a lawyer and I hold, I hold a lot of power and privilege because I do represent people in their matters. Mm-hmm. I have leadership positions in, in, in many of the organizations I've worked in, so I held privilege. So privilege can be anything. We just need to recognize that. that. But anyway, so in terms of creating psychological space and the, the example that I gave in the book is that it's just to, like, like we said, he said to me, the words he said was, I hear you, mm-hmm. I see you, and I'm here to listen. And when he said that, I just then just told him the things that we discussed with Todd on that day have brought change into the organization mm-hmm. because we then created a number of things that have right up to today. Our better health services is working on different projects that resulted from that conversation, just that conversation, because he said, Cecilia, I am a white-aged middle man. I don't know that these things are happening. Mm -hmm. Because I told him things like, so for example, you have, we have a lot of black doctors we have brought from Africa. I said, I sit in a place of privilege here in the, in human resources. And they see someone black like them Mm -hmm. and they come to me and say, you know what? I struggle giving, doing patient care because some patients, they told, they tell me, I don't want a Negro touching me. He's like, what? That happened. I said, it does happen. Mm-hmm. You don't get to hear it because mm-hmm. people don't feel comfortable to come and tell you where you are mm-hmm. sitting. And he's, you got to learn a lot of things. I said, for me, I am having the burden of vicarious trauma because 
I get to hear all these things mm-hmm. that people bring to me because they see someone like them, but I don't know what to do. I don't know mm, how to help yeah. them either because I also struggle with some of these things. And it's like, thank you for telling me something that I didn't know all along. Hmm. And I said, so for myself, one of the things I feel like I belong nowhere because I work for the most part, I sit at tables with white people. I am black. And I don't feel that I have a voice. I feel I'm sitting there as a token Mm -hmm. of, you know, we have a black person, we have diversity. And then my own African people, they look at me and say, oh, now she hangs out with white people. She she hangs with those people. And so I am neither here (laughs) nor there. I am in between. I live in my own world of loneliness. It's like, really? I'm like, yes. (laughs) So when I talk about diversity and inclusion, I'm I'm not only talking about white people have done this wrong. Even ourselves as people of color, we can make life difficult for white people or for each other. And in in the challenges ourselves going into our own hearts to say, how am I treating the next person Hmm. despite of their color, their or sexual orientation, their age, their whatever? How am I treating them? Hmm. So I, I, I think that that's for me the biggest thing to say. It's it's a responsibility of all of us. It's not just the leaders. It's not just white people. It's, it's all of us. It's all of us. Yeah. And what I'm hearing from this is uh, just so just to stress this is that there is a lot of humility in here also, yes. right? Just lessening the ego because sometimes it feels like, you know, an attack. Again, yeah. psycho- psychological safety, right? Yeah. So it feels like an attack. And as a, as a leader, if we do hear something yeah. that we are not really agreeable to or we feel like it's an attack to us, it's to it's to um, have the humility and be humble enough to say, I'm here, right? I'm here. I hear you. I see you. I'm here to listen. Yes. So I think this is like very, this is what I've been in our conversation. This is what I've been hearing so much. Yeah. And again, going back to uh, treating people as human beings yes. first, Yes. right? Regardless of, again, the sexual orientation, gender, race, etc. cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So also, I understand that as a human race, right, and very much triggered, right, in 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 little things for to protect our own selves, right? Yes. Because again, we are built for that, yeah, to protect ourselves, but to also um, allow ourselves to be to open up, even if it's you know difficult conversations, yes. right? And and I have to admit that even myself as an immigrant uh, and a woman of color, I felt like before 2020, I'm like, I don't even think about any of these things. Like for me, I'm just showing up at work and just doing my work and having that, you know, that, that, that culture wise or anything that has influenced me ever since when I, from the Philippines growing up there, I just felt like, no, I'm just doing my thing. And then 2020 happened and it started to just like completely you know, question a lot yeah. of things. Mm-hmm. But, you know, there's also that hesitation. And you mentioned this also earlier on about, you know, walking on eggshells. But at the same time, there is that hesitation because there is some parts, part of me that's saying that I don't know the language to, to, to talk about this, right? And, and 
when now that we're having this conversation, it feels like, yeah, and that's why there's a need to be educated yes. and to be made aware of yeah. exactly this. And slowly, with the help of your book as well, and of course, conversations with others and looking at things more differently and, and questioning the biases that do come up, mm-hmm. there's a lot of work to be done, definitely. But I feel like, you know, having more and more of that confidence mm-hmm. to not just be, oh, I'm just going about my my work and I don't really, my, my own business and not really caring so much about what everyone mm-hmm. else is thinking. Yeah. But to think that I'm not alone yeah. and that I'm part of the human race and that I belong, I belong here. Yes. And so, and so uh, with this, I, I'm, I'm just really so grateful um, that you said yes to this conversation. We are having it right now. Just to, to wrap this up and to end, I want to ask, I know there's still so many things that we can of talk course. about. Of course. <laughs> yes. And maybe we can do that in another, in another, another time. Yes. You yes. know, we have gone over. Right. Our- yes. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what? It's it's a great conversation. And I just don't want to lose what you said about yeah. education. So one of the reasons why we have this diversity consultancy is mm-hmm. we actually do a lot of training on uh, unconscious bias, yes. allyship, how to have those conversations and then we also do coach leaders who find it difficult to have because there is a lot of discomfort around these topics yes how to lean into the conversation how to be vulnerable like you say how to have that humility to say I don't know everything I don't know what I don't know and um, help me learn or understand all those things. So we we do have, uh, and, and I know many people do that as well. So there is, there is help, there is education mm-hmm. around. And then, of course, like I said, we do one-on-one coaching as well, but we, we, we're happy to do work with communities, with organizations, just to help to, to have a starting point of uh, creating some safety and comfort in having these conversations. Yes, wonderful. And so glad that you're doing that. And I'm definitely going to share your website and the place to go to if anyone is interested to work with you and your team. That would be great. Yeah, that would be awesome. And we can also share the link to the book. if Oh, yes, of course. I'm going to share you. (laughs) I can share the link to your book. (laughs) I will do that. Yeah. So before before we end, uh, Cecilia, is there anything that you would like to share that I haven't, that we may not have touched on? During this I interview. think for the most part, we touched on the highlights mm-hmm. of, uh, of, of the book and uh, what, what I would like to share in the world. I just want to highlight that we, we don't often think about people who live with disabilities. Mm, yes, um, yes. It, it's, it's really important. Uh, in my practice, I do see a lot of discrimination, even the way our systems are built. You know, we have very few things where is accessible washrooms that is there but uh, many times and then I am also seeing a lot of discrimination against people who are aged like um, the elderly people who are experiencing homelessness yes yes so I'm just inviting people to be mindful of um, we don't know what brings people to the state that they are in then we we, you know, if you think of the iceberg analogy that we judge people based on the 10% of what we see from the outside. Mm-hmm. We don't know the 90% that is buried under the water. So let's remain curious. Let us think about how would I want to be treated if I was the one in that space? 
and 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 I think that's how we can contribute to a better world. I love it. Yeah. Thank you so much, Cecilia. This has been very enlightening for me and also very inspiring and to keep on continuing uh, this this conversation and to be able to also invite you know, and create safe spaces for people to engage on these kinds of, of dialogue. With that, thank you. And thank you, everybody, for, for listening. If you want more information about Cecilia, you can find them on the description. And go ahead and buy her book. Again, this is the, yes. the book. Yeah, <laughs> we're going to hold it together. <laughs> Beyond Tokenism. It's, it's yeah. such a great read. And you'll learn, you'll learn a lot. All right. Thank you, Cecilia. Thank you so much, Francis. Uh, thank you again for having me and for being such a wonderful quiet influencer yeah. <laughs> my pleasure thank okay. you all right you have a good day we will connect thank you for listening you can read and download a full transcript at bigimpactwomen.com forward slash the imaginal life if you like this episode and want to hear more hit the subscribe button in your favorite podcast app if you feel moved and inspired, head to iTunes and leave us a review. I love hearing your feedback on how we can continue to grow and evolve the program. I believe when women come together, we can co-create humanity's new story and contribute our gifts to the world.